Hello and welcome to Non-Breaking Space, which you can find online at nonbreakingspace.tv. Non-Breaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest people on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarlane, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. I'm Chris from Canada, a web designer and podcaster Christopher and Dave have invited along to help push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Non-Breaking Space. Our guest for this episode is Samantha Warren. Samantha Warren is an experienced designer, speaker, and writer who leverages a diverse background in artistic mediums to create compelling and functional web experiences. Currently, Samantha is the communications designer at Twitter. In her personal time, she talks about design and the web on her blog, badassideas.com, and spends time with her cross-eyed cat, Grace. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Christopher and Dave and their conversation with Samantha. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Uh, It's going great, Christopher. Um, Went camping with my son last weekend. First time ever he's been camping so it was quite a uh, sleepless experience but um, we had a great time we were on the oregon coast and had great weather it was awesome well how old is your son like like how he's uh eight because my idea is camping is a is a uh is a like resin in or something like that so (laughs) yeah no we had a tent and everything it was very very sophisticated okay cool so how are you doing I'm doing great, yeah. Um, doing awesome. I'm really looking forward to our, our guest today. And uh, so let's just bring her in and, and talk about uh, design and, and topography and all that great stuff out there. This is Samantha. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good. Welcome. So you, uh, you have a cross-eyed cat? I do. Does, it, does that cause problems for the cat? or? You know, it's funny. I, uh, when I first got her, I took her to the vet and I asked the vet if she had any problems. And he told me to cross my eyes and see if I had any problems. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Wasn't very helpful of an answer, but uh, she seems to be just, just a fine, perfectly fine cat. She's just cuter than other cats. Very good. Any YouTube videos? Uh, no, not, not right now. I try to keep her. Good for you. Yeah. yeah. There's enough Respect out there. your privacy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Samantha, maybe you could tell us a little bit and tell our audience a little bit about how you got into the industry and a little bit about your background and what you do now. Yeah, that's that's sort of a two-part question for me because I was very fortunate to be raised by two creative parents. Um, my mother went to art school um, in the 60s, actually, Art Institute. Um, she was one of the first classes to graduate from there as a fashion illustrator And my dad ran a printing company as I was growing up. So I was sort of always around design and art. So I knew that that was what I wanted to do from a very early age. But how I exactly got into the web industry, sort of a unique scenario because I went to school for print design. But um, when I got out of school back in 2003, the employment situation for designers was really tough. It was probably as tough as it is now for like new grads. And um, I did a lot of temp work. I did a lot of different things. I did some museum exhibit design. I worked in-house actually at Wachovia and in-house at Circuit City, tried different things. And one day after doing um, about a year's worth of that, a friend from school gave me a call and said that he was um, on the web design team for the U.S. Army. And he said he had had experience at um, hiring developers, but what he found was developers were very difficult to teach design to. So he was going to try and hire a designer and teach them how to develop websites. Hmm. And so that's sort of how I got into the web industry. And that was, that was Donnie Steele, and I'm forever grateful for that because um, the U.S. Army's web team taught me HTML and CSS. <laughs> wow. So uh, what, are you, what are you doing now? So now, um, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of things since then. Um, I worked for the Army for about three years, and then I've worked at several different creative agencies and tried big ones and small ones. And um, now uh, I've um, accepted a job at Twitter. I'll I'm be working at Twitter. And, um, yeah, I mean, I mostly focus on really trying to help people tell uh, tell stories online, mm-hmm. um, really focus on the emotional aspect of what interfaced interfaces can do and what web design can do. Awesome. So, yeah. so like, what do you mean by like uh, emotional design? Like, uh, cause you know, like we had uh, Aaron Walter on the show talking about emotional design and, and, uh, and, the, and like what type of aspects, you know, do you bring, uh, like, or do you look for when you bring in a, a design to have like emotional impact? Well, I think, Design is emotional on several different levels. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, just looking at a design, um, you know, there's different degrees of emotion, different types of emotion. I know a lot of the stuff that Aaron does, he's 
man, I'm a big fan of Aaron Walters um, and the stuff that he talks about and what he's been doing with MailChimp. Um, But I also feel that part of the emotional aspect is the experience of um, actually designing the website. So I I really like to include all stakeholders and clients and really try and make it an inclusive process. Um, I see design as being kind of psychological and um, you know, and how you approach things and how you interpret its aesthetics. So it's all sort of, I don't know if there's really one way for me to say, you know, emotional design is like a thing that I do, but I like to try and really communicate stories. Um, and that story may be in how the site was designed, how the interactor uses it, um, how the user interacts with it, um, or how, how you work with the client to sort of come up with the solution. Yeah, that's. It reminds me of um, I, I don't know if you remember uh, or know of uh, Derek Pozak, and um, he has a site he used like back in the day called uh, the Fray. It's still around, I guess. Um, and his is always about like building mini uh, stories uh, or web, mini websites around stories that people would submit, and uh, and uh, he would use web design techniques and um, that were you know that kind of cutting edge for the time, and to to build them in there and actually kind of bring them to a forefront like through topography illustration and stuff like that so and um i think i actually wrote a book about um storytelling for communities and stuff like that so it's pretty pretty interesting like that so um so like when, when you're looking to design uh for emotion like uh like one of the things like from a personal point of view is like what really got me like the light bulb turned on about design was when i realized that we had uh tools in our in our toolkit we had typefaces, we had photos, uh, even content, you know, the words that we picked out, and as ways of expressing that message. And if those tools didn't like work in harmony with message that, that either we wanted to, to say or the client wanted to say, uh, if, that, if, if the emotion, I guess what way you call it, like emotional res- uh, resonance, Mm-hmm. If you will, if if they weren't in sync from like the colors to type choices, then the uh, design was was not going to going to happen. W- would you say that's uh, similar? Yeah, absolutely. I think I mean the thing with the web that's really unique and what I find to be an interesting challenge is that there's a really fine line when you're telling a story because you don't want to detract from the content. The content is a major. I mean, that's what's telling the story, but you want to enhance it too. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of little subtle things that you can do just in, for example, typefaces, um, contrast, every little different piece of the site sort of broken down can enhance the way the content tells the story and the emotion that you, um, you communicate. And so that's, what's really interesting to me is always finding the line of where you can balance really like strong content, readability, legibility, and this feeling of emotion that the, the words are actually connecting with how they're being delivered to you. So, so what are some of the, maybe you could give like a concrete example. Can you think of a website maybe you worked on or even just like a, a subsite or something that um, had kind of a content that had a specific kind of emotional tone and what did you do design-wise to help bring that out to mirror the, the tone of the content? Well, I recently worked on uh, a redesign of the Washington Examiner, which is um, it's a regional newspaper in the D.C. area that really focuses on the the region, the community, and the fact that um, the community is very empowered by the political atmosphere. And so with that particular one, I worked really hard because it's a newspaper. It's published. I mean, it's got a very frequent publishing cycle. There's a, there's a fine line. You don't want to detract from right. How you how you read that and how you consume the content, but there was definitely there wasn't the feeling of the community, there wasn't the feeling of the region um, infused in the design. So I worked really hard with that client to sort of extract the adjectives, extract what they felt the the real soul of their brand was, and try and subtly work that in, balancing that line between um, communicating content. Um, with with the typography and the the content, I think that's that's more of a I think challenging like a newspaper or some sort of delivery method like that is more of a challenging um, scenario because it's you're really designing for all types of content um, and yeah. you're trying to communicate the motion of like a brand or the audience. But um, I think a really great project that I admire I've never um, of course worked on, but um, if you're familiar with the bold italic in the San Francisco area. Um, it's actually, oh, what's that? 
it's a it's a local magazine there that's sort of done the um, the sort of creative direction where you design each different blog posts differently, except for it's an actual magazine. They have a staff and they're writing stories, they're pairing um, designers up with storytellers, with, um, with journalists to write a, and publish a story every day. And each one is very beautifully designed. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And I, I think it's really a special, a very special thing that they've got going on there. And it would, I would love to see that sort of model mm-hmm. really take off more in the commercial space. Cause there are blogs, lots of personal blogs that do that sort of stuff, but they're really one of the first, um, organizations I've seen that have been successful at monetizing that to some degree and, um, working that around a real publication schedule. Right. Yeah. Cause like, uh, like what I mentioned with uh, Derek's site, the fray, like it was like whenever he get it out there, and it's like maybe f- three or four stories every quarter he he, he could produce a uh, yeah. an online magazine. But uh, but yeah, so this is this kind of approach reminds me of uh, Jason Santa Maria's uh, art direction. Yeah, approach. absolutely. Yeah, and so um, I I felt like that's I loved it because I felt like. Um, you know, with CMSs that are so easy to, to implement, like, you know, uh, WordPress started as a blog software, and now we have a, now it's, you know, almost like people reinvent it, or not reinvent it, but it's really they're pushing the CMS for it. Um, and then you have all these other tools like Drupal and all that. Very template driven uh, websites. So we, we get kind of lost with um, customizing each page yeah. for, for it. And so, um, well- what I like about the bold italic is, is they've managed to balance that too. Because if you actually go through their stories, you start to realize that their layouts are all pretty similar and they've got mm-hmm. a very strict grid, but they're still able to push the boundaries and really convey an emotion mm-hmm. um, despite all of those uh, constraints. Right. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's pretty amazing to see a website that's willing to, you know, put custom art on every page, you know, do design, you know, icons and illustrations for every single story. That's pretty unusual for the web. Yeah. For sure. It's great. Yeah. That's similar to like what Ted Ed is doing. I don't know if you've followed that, but Ted Ed, like they bring an educator who has some topic they're going to teach and then they find uh, an illustrator and they pair them together, an illustrator or an animator, and uh, they co-create an educational, you know, thing for TED Ed, which is really cool. So each one's different, highly customized, beautiful, and really engaging. Yeah, that's awesome. I I really believe in the power of like we, I think it's like we versus me, the idea Mm -hmm. that um, if you have, you know, if you're paired with somebody who has strengths in an area to attack, you know, a a problem, um, the art direction behind that and what you can do to like really draw the strengths of the individuals out um, can be pretty powerful. So I really love that idea of like pairing an educator and someone to, to sort of work on a site together. Oh, the site is great. So it's, uh, <laughs> for those of you listening, it's thebolditalic.com. And wow, you could just spend days looking at, I mean, the art is just fabulous. Mm-hmm. It's so great. Very cool. So uh, speaking of design, uh, you are really well known for better or worse. Uh, uh, Style tiles is kind of this thing that you innovated in uh, the web design space. Um, so maybe you could t- explain what style tiles are, if you're not totally sick of explaining it uh, <laughs> to our audience, and how you came up with it, what problems it solves, that kind of thing. Well, I think that really style tiles are just a culmination of process iterations and improvements that I've sort of made over a long period of time as working in the client services industry. Um, what I found was, you know, as a designer, you, you go to school and you learn all about um, principles and elements of design and how to critique and all of this stuff, but they really never teach you about like working with other people or working with clients. And it can come down to really making or breaking the success of a design. So mm-hmm. I think I, when I worked at a, I worked at a very large agency, And I found that I was just burning through these budgets because I was making all of these comps. And that was really the first time it clicked in my mind that something had to change. Like the process was sort of broken. Um, And in addition to doing that, like burning through all these comps, trying to please clients, I was also having a very difficult time communicating with them. We weren't really speaking the same language. Um, And I was also comping up like hundreds of pages to websites. And it just seemed like such such a terrible use of my time. 
And um, after that, I worked um, at an agency that really used a lot of mood boarding. And um, while I found mood boarding to be really great for exploration, it didn't quite resonate with a lot of the clients that I was working with because they already had um, brands. They already had really strong ideas about what they wanted with color. They they sort of were at the point where um, they really needed a website, but they didn't really producing a comp for them was just too high of fidelity. So I had sort of um, kind of come up with style tiles as this in the middle between the two that I had been working on with clients and it was pretty successful. And I had been talking a lot about it um, uh, amongst folks that I know, uh, other designers. And then I spoke at a conference, um, actually a DrupalCon. I had talked about just my process in general. And um, Jeremy Keith was actually in the audience there. And uh, Jeremy being the really awesome encourager that he is, he was like, you know, you this is this is something you should talk a little bit more about because this is, I think, something that's a little special. And so um, at that point, I had, um, you know, started doing more talks just specifically about that. And I really just needed um, people to a place to send people so that I didn't have to explain myself so many times. Um, so I put up the site um, Style Tiles. Yeah, so it's style, T-I-L dot E-S. So maybe you could explain what's the difference between a mood board and a style tile. Uh, you know, this the, these may be new terms for some people listening to um, to the podcast. So a mood board, I think, um, mood boards are nothing new in the design industry. I think branding um, and advertising agencies have been using them for a long time to really help uh, clients when they're looking to change their logo or really get a feel for what their company's brand or corporate identity is going to be. They put together. Um, what many people refer to as mood boards, which is sort of a compilation of images that um, give a feeling of, you know, what they're trying to convey. Um, It's colors. It could be magazine snippets. There's all sorts of different um, interpretations that you could take to a mood board. They also use them a lot in interior design to sort of show the feeling or mood, but it really captures a bigger picture idea. And um, so the problems I was having with using mood boards for web design were, A, I had clients who had already gone through a mood boarding process um, that had gone to a branding agency and they had done that. So for them to repeat that process for a website didn't make a lot of sense to them. Um, So just changing the name in itself just to style tiles and getting more specific um, style being like a direct reference to CSS cascading style sheets, they were able to kind of make that connection. Oh, okay, this is the specific process for web design. Um, And the second part of that was making the connection of this is going to eventually turn into a website. So being very specific, not necessarily just using clippings out of a magazine or random photos, but being very specific that this is a button. This is a potential button or an interface element, um, a form field, a table. Um, These are things that may be used on your site or at least will are examples of how this feeling could be conveyed on your site, but getting more concrete so the connection could be made. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would really be how uh, style tiles are different than mid boards. So instead of like, you know, creating a complete comp of a web page, you're sort of putting together components that potentially would be used on a web page um, for clients to review and approve. Is that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, you can use, it's a tool just like any other tool um, in a designer's toolbox. You could use it for a variety of of different reasons. Um, And what I tend to use them for is um, for communicating with clients or stakeholders. I mean, if you work on an internal design team, you may have several people who have different agendas and um, sign off and say. So it provides a way to sort of get specific faster without having to invest a lot of time. Um, it also allows for really quick, rapid iterations. Um, you know, if something, if what seems like a small change to a stakeholder, like, can you just change the font? Um, in a comp, if you're working in Photoshop, um, that may take actually kind of a long time to do. Um, but in a style tile, you have much, many fewer uh, elements to change, so you can do it much quicker. And um, the other reason that I, the other method that I really found them useful for is communicating with front-end developers, um, specifically for uh, when working on responsive design projects. Um, and, and that's actually really helpful for stakeholders as well, because when you're showing someone a comp, um, they initially, they, they think that's like, 
they think that's the site. You know, that looks right. exactly like the site, right? Well, why, what's the difference between that being the site and what my site's going to be? And so this sort of takes it out of that realm so that they understand that you're designing them a system mm-hmm. um, like really early on and that they don't necessarily get super locked into layouts um, that, you know, for specific devices or screen widths, they're starting to understand what the big picture system is um, without planting that seed that this is, this is exactly what your site's going to look like. Because inevitably, I think folks do that. They don't realize that's kind of one of those psychological things. They see the site and then they just, they fall in love with the way it looks just that way. Right. Um, and reality is it's not going to look that way in a lot of scenarios. Well, at least we hope that that's what they fall in love with uh, as opposed to the other direction that, uh, you know. They like absolutely hate the first draft. <laughs> so, but uh, but one thing I, I like about style tiles is that um, you get those clients where they want to see the visual right away. They don't want to go through the like uh, content inventory. They all, all, all like you know all the I won't say boring stuff, but just like the stuff that needs to be done in order to get a really nice uh, website up and running, like the uh, uh, wireframing, uh, mm-hmm. all the you know all the stuff like that, because they just want to see the finished product and see how it looks and so they could share it with their friends and stuff like that. So that's why like it, it's it's a visual but it's not uh, high fidelity like you said for mm-hmm. like uh, in Photoshop spending hours in Photoshop and it's not too vague like mood boards and um, you know I remember it's- I remember seeing my first mood board years ago because I was like getting into web design and and I was like and uh, it was a kind of demonstration of what a mood board was to get to a web, website design and I'm like I don't I, I still have problems with mood boards because I have like no idea how you Take different pieces of elements and then translate it to a grid. It's it's kind of kind of hard for me to deal with that. So, but uh, so that, that's like I like where style tiles comes in. Uh, and the good thing is, is if you're working on a big team, you can divide up the work um, really efficiently. You can work on style tiles while you're doing you know content inventories, site maps, mm-hmm. because the two are you're separating. It's kind of like separating you know HTML and CSS. The two can be um, very on d- different tracks and then meet at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the great thing about stat tiles is they don't really dictate anything about the content, whereas a complete comp does. You know, it dictates how much content there's going to be, um, where it's placed, all of that. This this just sort of is creating, you know, a real clear sense of, of visual design uh, elements that you want to have on your site. Um, one thing, uh, how do you present this to a client? What do you, what's the process? You say you build up some style tiles. What's your first... Uh, presentation to the client of style tiles and how do you do that? Well, I actually don't present style tiles immediately. Usually what I will do is I'll ask a series of questions and deliver um, a survey, which I think is really critical piece of the process because the survey essentially is getting the answers. It's getting the building blocks that you're going to build these style tiles from. Um, And by making a direct connection between the visuals and your client or stakeholders actual words, it allows them to make that psychological connection between the two things. So they feel like they're really being listened to. Um, they understand, they see the correlation between the two. So I'll, I'll do a survey and I'll actually present the survey results. I'll um, kind of aggregate them and write up some, um, some sort of findings and I'll present that to them first. We'll go through and sort of usually have a meeting, um, ideally in person, but you could do it over Skype. Um, you know, where you talk through all those things and make sure, hey, is everybody on the same page? Do you agree with each other? Um, and that way, if there are disagreements um, amongst the stakeholders themselves, they can sort of start to realize that that's something that sort of falls on them to they need to all get on the same page. Um, and usually at that point, you know, it's a good place to do that because you don't want them all trying to do that once there's a comp. Um and so, and then at that point, I would present the style tiles. And usually, um, I've presented them um, in multiple different ways, um, you know, over Basecamp. Um, but you can, I usually try and set up like a little switcher, an HTML switcher, where they kind of switch through them um, in a live HTML page. And um, they don't have to be, I mean, again, they don't have to be um, exactly any sort of size. Um, and you just kind of explain that, you know, this is the compilation, this is the size they're going to be at now because of the tile. Um, and that's that's usually the most efficient way to do it. So, um, you, you mentioned that you you ask clients a series of questions. Uh, what type of questions do you ask? Like, do you think they get the best uh, responses um, to help you with make a style tile? So there's there's a lot of different questions I ask, but I usually have um, a pretty solid foundation for the types of questions I. I want to make sure that every client gets a very custom experience when it comes to this sort of stuff. So I never, 
I, I don't really believe in like cookie cutter surveys, um, but I, I keep everything um, sort of generalized. So one of the types of questions I ask is a metaphor question. Um, and that's, you know, if this website was blank, um, what blank would it be? So it could be if this website was a cookie, what kind of cookie would it be or a car? Um, there's lots of different um, scenarios you can kind of pull out of there. And what that does is that gets the client thinking about their site and thinking about their brand in a different way where they use adjectives differently. Um, I mean, if you think about like for a car, there's definitely different feelings to different cars. They have different brand feelings. And once they start associating and understanding how their car may, um, or how their website could relate to the, the brand feelings of a car, you start to get the really, really good, um, good adjectives. Um, then another type of question I ask is, um, sort of a degree of question. And this is really more when it comes down to stylistic preferences. Um, when working with clients, I find that you can really get hung up on style, um, and preference rather than, uh, you know, the big picture goals. So knowing upfront, um, what stylistic preferences they're leaning towards. So for example, here, a question would be, um, if this website, or, or um, on a scale of one to 10, how illustrative would you like the website to look and give them an example of an illustrative website. So for example, MailChimp is a very illustrative website. You know, how, how much in this vein would you like this to be? Or you could say how typographic or photographic. Um, so you start to understand sort of what they're beginning to picture in their mind. Yeah. Cause I think that definitely like uh, helps the client to step back and not just feel like it's uh, um a rote answer to a, to a website design, right? It's, it gets them a little bit more abstract and then notions, yeah. right. So that definitely like helps out. And I think, yeah. And, and then you get to like the whole style tile itself. And we, we, um, so you, so you take those answers and then, um, what do you do with the answers then? Like, like you just, uh, digest them for a while and then. Well, the first thing I usually do is I print, I'll print them out actually, and I'll go through and I will start to highlight adjectives and then I begin to group them. Um, usually I'll actually, I'll highlight adjectives and find out if there's prevalent ad adjectives that are used over and over. So if you know five people were um, surveyed and all five of those people use the same adjective, maybe a couple different times, I then begin to rate them, you know, like, um, if they said clean, for example, was a very popular adjective, you know, five people said clean, um, four people said friendly, three people said, um, you know, patriotic, for example. Um, and so once I have that, that kind of gives me a baseline. Like I understand, okay, this is really the direction that's sort of a common ground if there is one. Uh -huh. And then if there's, um, then at that point I begin to sort of separate and group. Um, usually you start to see themes and I've had, um, you know, sometimes it's two themes, sometimes it's three themes, usually never more than three, though. Um, and I start to group these themes. And this is sort of the abstract part. And I get a lot of questions about how I do this. But it really does come down to what answers you get and where you start to feel these themes kind of come come up. And it, it does take some creativity. Sometimes you have to sort of pair things together that maybe, maybe might be a challenge to sort of visualize. But it's more about getting, just throwing something out there to your client. Because really whatever you visualize for whatever those adjectives are. I mean, it's, it's whatever you think, right. But you need to start to, to establish a baseline for what they think. So you come up with uh, what you think is clean and you show it to them and you get an agreement. Yes, this is clean or no, this is clean. And if, if they say no, then you know, you need to go in a different direction. Right. Right. And so in essence, we're like trying to increase the, uh, the communication of what the design, the emotional design is while not going straight to Photoshop. And like, so we're going straight through like the emotional design that you were talking about before. So it's. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Trying, trying to really kind of connect at this point and communicate. I think it's sort of baffled me over the years, but what I found is, is that a lot of times designers just don't really communicate. Like you almost have to hyper communicate with your clients and your stakeholders sometimes. Right, right. And this sort of provides the structure to do that. Right. Well, yeah, we were, we were just, uh, we just, we talked to, uh, through, uh, uh, Rosenfield, uh, and, uh, he was actually saying like in, in a world of, uh, people who, uh, uh, who are professional communicators, like they, they, they help facilitate communications for others. Uh, we do a really poor job of communicating 
<laughs> so uh, <laughs> with other people who aren't in our industry, and so it's uh, so it's, it's kind of kind of kind of interesting that we've we've hit the same tone uh, in, in a row here. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the problems with designers is that they th- they think they can communicate, and many can, but their way of communicating is pr- providing the finished novel, if you will, rather than uh, all the, the sort of notes about constructing that novel along the way. And one of the things I really love about your approach is it's these sort of small steps of communication that build up this trust between you and the client where you are starting with a, a dialogue around this questionnaire so that you're all sort of filling each other out and slowly you know building a consensus then you jump to these style tiles where instead of giving the finished novel you're providing some you know notes uh, some chapters perhaps of the novel and sort of getting them to respond um, to very, you know, uh, specific things like here's what a headline will look like, here's what a button will look like, here's uh, colors. And instead of them being overwhelmed, which many, you know, most clients are not designers, so they are overwhelmed by a finished comp. And they'll immediately just, whatever draws their attention first, that's what they're going to talk about. But here you're slowly building up their sort of visual understanding of what's possible for their site. And they are making these very concrete um, and small uh, agreements with you. Like, that's Mm -hmm. a great color. I like that color. And I like that pattern. And I like that headline. And let's do that. And once you've got that, it's it's. The next step is going toward a, a finished design, and I think it's those small steps of communication where you're building consensus each, uh, each po- at each point that really will make for a great, you know, final product. Absolutely, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I feel like sometimes like, if you give a client a mock-up uh, right away, um, you, they'll feel like they'll, they have to go over uh, Titanic. Uh, not Titanic uh, they have to go over uh, Niagara Falls in order to. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. agree to it, whether they like, but they're uncertain, you know, of whether to go, go forward. So, but yeah, definitely. So I, I feel like, you know, I don't want to rephrase it too much what Dave just said, but it was just, you know, you, you make those minor agreements as you go through the, that style tile process. And so that helps. Yeah. Trust and I, a lot. It's great. For, it's great for designers for the same reason, you know, instead of feeling like, Oh my God, I've got a blank canvas that I have to fill with a three or four column grid-based design, you know, you as the designer are slowly building up your own kind of thoughts about where the design is going to go by, you know, taking on these very discrete challenges, like what's the headline going to be? What are the possible colors? What are patterns that I can use? Um, So it's great. It's really uh, uh, a neat, neat idea. Yeah. And I think it also, I mean, it also provides you this this opportunity to, to finally kind of ship. I mean, one of the things that I was finding when I was doing these large scale like comp deliveries is that I might complete the project, but maybe you know because the client was hadn't really communicated that they weren't in love with it. Mm-hmm. It would I would deliver the project would be finished. You know, the the agency I work for got its money, but then they might not launch the site because they really they weren't that happy with it. But what I found is with South House, you know, the final product does ship because the whole time you're getting this feedback and in the end it's just the next step to to complete the project rather than it being like this huge like throwing it over the fence it's great this is really excellent stuff so are you totally sick of talking about it though (laughs) Um, it's it's definitely been um i i think i was delightfully surprised that people are as interested as they are but i mean the goal for me is to try and really help other folks. I mean, mm-hmm. I love good design and I want to see more sites designed better. And so if this is helping other designers do better work, that's great. One thing like uh, you're also, I think, you know, passionate about is uh, typography. Yeah. Is, uh, and you know, you've given, I mean, how many talks have you given at uh, South by Southwest about typography? Oh, um, I did two, two, one was a panel. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I've definitely given quite a few types, uh, talks about typography, but mm. that m- might be a subject that I'm a little less, um, a little less excited to talk about just because I think there's definitely a point where, um, on a subject matter that you talk on, you know, I'm very passionate about it and I love it, but it's not, there are people who go to school to make typefaces and draw like very detailed, their expertise is just beyond mine by tenfold. <laughs> and, um, I think it's really interesting because 
in the web community, um, you can be really excited about something and suddenly people think that you're an expert on it. (laughs) Right. And it's just not the case for me. I just really love talking about it and like talking with other people and connecting about it. So I think there's a point where I reached where I was like, I'm, I would really like to hear like other folks talk about this now. So (laughs) this pop quiz on ascenders and descenders and type. You don't, you don't want that now. I guess we yeah, just put that. Let's put, put that away. That. I, okay, I, I had. I do have. Um, I mean, I went to school. I went to design school where I had a professor who was actually a, an expert on typography, which is where I got my excitement, and passion from. Uh, it definitely rubbed off from her. Um, but yeah, I'm not. When it comes to really detailed um, aspects, especially when it comes to web web fonts, I would say that I am not. I can refer you to someone very, <laughs> very intelligent on that topic. So, how about favorite font faces? Do you have a few that you love? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, I kind of go through different phases with that. Um, I do love really beautiful scripts, and because they're hard to pull off well, and um, I think. This generation of designers are super lucky to have Alejandro Paul because before him, there really weren't a whole lot of fantastic digitized script faces. And he's doing just an amazing job with, um, with he brings a lot of typefaces online that were um, traditional, um, you know, script faces that were not digitized. And then he does a lot of his own. So, um, I mean, you, you basically see them all over. I don't know if people realize it's him, but his, his work has become very Famous. So anything by Alejandro Paul. If you Google A L E Paul, um, his firm is known as Sudtipos, which is Southern type, I believe, in Spanish. S U D. But I mean, you'd, you would probably recognize a lot of the, the scripts he's um, done. He did Candy Script, which. Um, oh yeah, I love that. Yeah, um, Audio Script, Burgess Script. I mean, just pretty much most of the really popular, beautiful scripts out there he's done these days. So, yeah, so Kenny script is available all through uh, Veer. So, but it uh, looks like, so yeah, that, oh man, that's nice. Yeah, these are great. Yeah. Yeah, so it's sudtipos, S-U-D-T-I-P-O-S.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are great. Are these... Um, web fonts i mean can you do is there a web license for these things some of them are the majority of them are there are a few still that um i wouldn't say render they're not hinted that well for Mm -hmm. the web um specifically i know because samia is one of my favorites and it's it's available but still not hinted that well um for web web usage but um definitely the ones that are are usable online um you'll see them they're beautiful well, that, that brings up an issue, like, uh, like, like, it, and one of the things in doing research is like you, you, you talked about. I know you, you want to say like you're not an expert on type, but I just want to get your thoughts on <laughs> the, uh, you know, translation of uh, offline to online typography. Uh, yeah. You know, and and any, you know, we go to school for design. You know, if you're, you know, people go to school for design, uh, what they do, like they pretty much they would be learned about the the uh, prints. And how to uh, design for print, and how that—that's some. You know, what challenges do you see, like in trying to translate uh, typefaces that work great on print, but uh, and try to get them into an online environment? Well, I think. I mean, still to this day, I think that it's the best the best fonts that are rendered online are ones that were designed online for online, like Georgia. I have a hard time finding a serif font that's more beautifully rendered than Georgia. Yeah, um, I agree. It's just, it's fantastic. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't think anything beats Georgia italics. Am I, am I wrong? Am I wrong, guys? I love Georgia italics. Yeah. I, I just think it's absolutely um, stellar. And the work that was put into it, you can see. And that's the thing. I'm really actually curious to see uh, what Heffler for Jones is going to be coming up with with their um, with their web fonts because I don't know. Have you guys seen his talk that he did um, for AIGA about what they're doing over no. there? No. So they're actually kind of reinventing all of their typefaces for the web. Oh, great! Which is why it's taking them so long to bring them online. Um, and he has a, a a really beautiful video online. Let me see if I can, because it's kind of hard to find. Maybe I can send you guys a link to post. Sure. After. Um, but it's a fantastic presentation that he gives, where he really talks about how um, you know type is interpreted and it's a system, and how really for rendering fonts online, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, personally, where I see the flaw, and this is where I don't want to get into some huge 
controversial debate because I know there's a lot of debate about this online. But personally, I think that it's kind of a hard carrot to chase because, I mean, we're just, this technology is changing. Screen resolutions are changing. All these things are changing so fast. So to completely um, try and design around this at this point is maybe sort of a futile effort. But I'm excited to see what he comes up with and what he ends up launching with. I wonder how they're going to... License these things or sell them, whether they'll do a web service or you just buy the fonts and you can use them. Well, I'm not quite sure. I know that Kotke actually is using um, a Heffler for Jones font on his. I don't know if he's testing it for them, yeah. um, ah. but yeah. it does look like it's being served from them, from their servers. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because we talked to you um, in a previous episode, uh, Jeff Croft, and he actually explained that. Uh, for engine works that they wanted to use one of their fonts and they, they wouldn't allow it. But since that time, they've actually are working in a beta of, of their own font service. And so in Kaki is, is uh, one of the, one of the ones who get it. I think also Dan Cedarholm is also one of the people. Who, oh really? Yeah, I think so. If I remember correctly. So yeah, so they're actually, they're actually testing it out. So, and, um, and um, so, I mean, I, I, I kind of hesitate to bring it up, but just, I love the fact that we have uh, so many fonts that are available through like services like Typekit, which is you know now bought by uh, Adobe, and um, which is now Adobe's service. And we have other similar services out there, and you know Type Foundries are working on bringing their own uh, services up there. But uh, I guess you know fonts as as uh, renting is going to be commonplace. I mean, I I feel like like any thoughts on that, or is that just yeah? I mean. At first, I was a little hesitant to the scenario of essentially renting fonts. Yeah, what Typekit and FontDeck are doing. Um, but the more and more integration that I'm seeing with uh, with like Photoshop Typekit is becoming very integrated with um, Adobe products. Um, the more I'm starting to think it's really here to stay. Um, and it's it's providing a service that I think everybody's happy with. I think. For a long time, this was such a controversial issue because there were so many people involved and people were very, very nervous um, and they had very strong opinions about how this should be done. But it does seem that, um, you know, services like Typekit have kind of struck a balance where all parties involved are pretty happy with what is what's, what's happening. Um, and I, I can understand all parties involved's like concerns. You know, the folks who are making the typefaces, they want to be compensated they want to make sure that they're not having their typefaces stolen. They want to make sure that they're being rendered um, as beautifully on on the screen as they are in print. These are all very valid concerns from a you know a designer's point of view. Um, and then there are web designers who want to be able to use these fonts. Like, why can't I have them available to any um, to if I'm if I buy a font uh, for print, why can't I use it online on the web? You know, there's, there's so many different facets to what makes this a a controversial issue, but it does seem that the renting method has sort of struck a balance. It does. It's, it can cause some problems. There's still lots of little intricacies and problems that sort of make it a challenge from a designer's perspective. Um, but I think that it's all doable at this point. Right. Yeah. I think it's, um, I, I definitely agree. I think it's, um, uh, like my little tipping point, I think we're like way, like way beyond the, you know, uh, you know, putting the cork back in the bottle. Like, because I think, uh, you know, we, I'm really happy that we have uh, web fonts for, for, for usage beyond uh, Arial and uh, Helvetica, and so that's that's very awesome. But um, one of the things I have concern with is this: like, there's a concern about typography or, or type or fonts on the web, and uh, is this that there was also a concern about photographers. And their photos being used yeah. and reused. Yeah, we didn't like you know we didn't create a big storm for them. It's you know they're kind of learning to deal with with that issue. Uh, then you have people who just copy words and blog posts, and you have RSS syndication feeds going to uh, ghost uh, you know WordPress sites or whatever. And so we so you know all this content's being stolen so that. But so somehow there was like uh, this barrier in the sand, like this line in the sand, or like we, web fonts, we got to stop. You know that's 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 in, that's uh, copyrighted material right there. We we can't go any further. So. And I'm kind of glad. I kind of really respect the type industry for sort of putting their foot down. Mm-hmm. There's something pretty awesome about the fact that they knew, like we can draw the line here. We can sort of own this. Right. And so they they 
they made it a pain in the butt to like try and make it happen, but they did. They, they made progress. Everybody made progress in the end and everybody's happy. Right. Um, whereas that could have very much not been the case. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's, um, in the technology, uh, uh, technology solution is pretty awesome too. Cause it's, it's not like they can prevent uh, wholesale, like they can't prevent theft of the font. Uh, but Jeff Bean talks about how their service, you know, it's like very, uh, they put in enough obstacles uh, where it's really just a pain <laughs> to go yeah. and get the font, you know, if you really want it. So, um, so it's sort of like, um, I think uh, almost in a way it's just like taking a photo, if we were to put a photo on the website and they just chop up into little bits and say like, Oh, you, you can steal this photo, but you have to like copy and, and download every like 10, 10 by 10 pixels of this photo if you really want it. And yeah. That, that gets kind of annoying after a while. So for like the people who Photoshop the, the watermark out, you yeah, know, exactly. I mean, yeah, you can take this and Photoshop the watermark out, but is it really going to be that great of a photo after you do all that? Yeah. yeah I think, <clears throat> I think the, you know, the biggest hurdle was figuring out the pricing. And I think that's sort of, they sh- that's been sort of solved. I think, you know, it, at first, I think a lot of people were really, I mean, I, I forget what some of the, the, some of the original pricing was pretty steep. I think it was like 10 bucks a month or something like that, which, you know, it's not a lot of money, but when you're talking about two fonts on a website and for a lot of people who are paying, you know, $25 a month for hosting, you know, mm-hmm. that's like, seems like a lot of money. But, um, you know, like Typekit has a free one and they have a personal, they have all these different sort of stepped up versions. And, and you know, for, for large clients, it's not going to be that, you know, this is like 50 bucks a year. It's nothing, right? Uh, well, and um, really too, I mean, if you look at the publication industry and you look at how they've been, um, they've actually been having custom made fonts for lots of money, like made right. for their brands for years. I mean, there is an interest in paying money for this to happen. Yeah. Uh, I've worked with publications that are so invested in their the typefaces that they use that they would probably they would pay lots of money to have this happen. It's that important to them. Mm-hmm. So th- I think there definitely is. Um, it does it does get tricky though. You know, like there are the, there's still those opportunities where you really want to use web fonts and you kind of have to com- you have to over communicate to your client, you know, that it is going to cost more, but really explain it to them. So if you're not, if you're not fully, if people aren't fully educated about why it's important to pay for the fonts, it is hard to convince clients. Well, one thing that's nice about the, the um, rental model is that, you know, there's a value add to what their services are. You know, they are always tweaking the system. They're making sure the fonts will work on all platforms. When a new platform comes out, they make sure it works. So, you know, you are, they are making sure that the font is going to work into the future. Whereas if you just get some fonts and you slap them on your server, you're not totally assured that there's not a new font format or some other hitch that you're going to get stuck with and suddenly your typefaces don't work on your site you know in addition you know you've got a cdn model so they're handling all this bandwidth and and all this uh kind of making it a a fast process so you know there's a lot of of benefits things like typekit Mm -hmm. bring to the table beyond just you know here's some cool fonts you can use we're giving you all these other things as part of the the fee so and that's my appeal as a designer selling to clients because i mean there's going to be a point where i no longer am involved like this this site will live beyond me and i'm not going to be there to to help this client make any sort of upgrades or um completely um upkeep it for a while and so having that third party there that they're paying um it's it's gives me a lot of relief to know that that's not something that all of a sudden one day, you know, this font's going to, to really deteriorate mm-hmm. over time. Right. Just make sure you pick a, a good backup font so that if they yeah. forget to pay their bill and the font disappears. <laughs> it's important. I think people really should, even to some degree, design for both. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just do like an eye test. Like, this one better? This one better? Okay. <laughs> this, this side better? This side better? Okay. Go. That's good. Yeah, I like so, that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's time to wrap up, but it's been a huge pleasure talking to you. Uh, we always ask, or we usually ask, a, a, a final question about um, the web field and what it holds for us in the future. Um, are, are there any emerging web design or technology trends that you're super excited about that you're like, wow, things are going to be really cool when we're all doing X, Y, or Z. Well, that's a very tough question. Cause I think I'm really excited about like the possibilities 
all the things that I'm really excited about are just extensions of things that have sort of been emerging for a while, but are really mm-hmm. taking shape and, and taking off. Um, I'm really excited about just like the level of um, animation and stuff that um, HTML5, CSS3 sort of things can, can yeah. do and what people are doing with them. Um, really excited about the type of things that like you've probably seen the include guys who did for beer camp. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, right. Um, that sort of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, well, that's not very practical, but they're really pushing forward what you could do in the case that you did have a practical application for that. Uh-huh. Um, those are the sorts of things. And responsive design, of course, because I love working with lots of content and I love being able to consume content in lots of different ways. And I think responsive um the whole responsive web methodology really lends to a, a broader, more applicable, um, not just for device and technology, but design sense. People thinking in terms of systems instead of sites is really a healthier way for our industry to think. And I think just seeing us move in that direction is is really appealing. And I, I can't wait to see how that unfolds. Yeah, awesome. So um, I totally agree. I think those are, it's, it is, it's a very exciting time, you know, for being a web designer. Things are really changing quickly and people are innovating with, like you were saying, just with, even with CSS3, just doing animations and transitions in ways that people hadn't really thought of create amazing visual effects. Um, how can people, you know, keep in touch with you or follow you on Twitter or any of that stuff? What are you involved in in the social media world? I'm uh, Samantha Toy on Twitter and um, I'm also on Dribble, which I really love dribble um i'm samantha on dribble um so i'm samantha toy on most things samantha on a few others um but twitter is usually the best way to get in touch with me cool and you blog at uh com. <laughs> it needs it needs a redesign i'm that's my next big personal project underway Yes, well, we all need to redesign <laughs> our personal sites, I know. Oh, man, tell me about it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> all right, Samantha, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for being on our show. Thank you very much for having me. Our thanks to Samantha Warren for joining us on Nonbreaking Space. You can check out the show notes for this episode at nonbreakingspace.tv, where we'll have all the links discussed in this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at NBSPTV and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash NBSPTV. We're also in the iTunes podcast listing, and we'd really appreciate it if you subscribed and left a rating or a review. It helps us spread the word about the Non-Breaking Space show. Be sure to watch for the next episode of Non-Breaking Space to hear Lou Rosenfeld say, Oh, God. Um, you, you, <laughs> in a way, you're, you're asking me to not um, participate in one but two religious wars uh, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs>